an incredible piano performance ripe for sampling. A beloved jazz tune with a distinctly nautical vibe and an energetic funk classic. You're listening to Themes and Variation. Themes and Variation is a podcast about music and perspectives brought to you by the online music school Soundfly. I'm your host, Carter Lee. So folks, a very exciting episode for you today as our very special guest is the one and only RJ D2. RJ really first made a name for himself with his acclaimed debut record, Dead Ringer. He's really proven that it's possible to make infectious instrumental hip-hop beats for a very wide audience without the need for a singer or MC. And since his debut album and many, many others to follow it, he's taken on one creative challenge after another, from composing the TV theme music for Mad Men, to collaborating with vocalists and rappers, and taking the art of sampling to brand new heights. And as you heard on the pre-roll for this episode, we actually just released a brand new course with the man himself, RJD2, From Samples to Songs. You might be asking, Carter, what can I expect from this brand new course? Well, you'll learn new approaches to sampling, songwriting, and arranging, and how to make instrumental beats that capture someone's attention from start to finish. Along the way, of course, RJ will be sharing with you his wisdom, perspectives, and advice for fulfilling your creative dreams. I still can vividly remember being at uh, Berkeley College of Music my first week. I uh, just met my roommate. We kind of go in our separate sides of the rooms. I might have been reading something. And he throws a track on, absolutely blasting. I believe it was Beyond the Beyond uh, from RJ's record, The Third Hand. And I was absolutely hooked from that moment on. So to be able to now be down the road and, and actually play a part in making a course with this guy, it, it really is a dream come true. And our entire team had so much to do with bringing this course to life. So I really hope you check it out. Of course, as always, feel free to use that discount code THEMES to take 20% off a monthly or annual subscription. This one, I mean, like all of our courses, but of course this one, it is so worth diving into. And of course, joining RJ and I on this episode is my bass playing brother, the one and only producer and composer, Mr. Martin Fowler. And we get into all kinds of things on this episode, like how imposing limitations on yourself can actually enhance your creativity, RJ's unique relationship with the wonderful world of music theory, and so much more on the world of sampling from one of the greats to ever do it. So without further ado, let's get into the episode, Sample Fodder Songs. Folks, another themes and variation coming at you. I'm joined today by the one and only Mr. Martin Fowler. Marty, how you doing, man? What up, what up? I'm great. I'm so great. Yes. <laughs> Dude, I I don't want to bury the lead here. I'm super, super stoked. I think we both are to be joined by the one and only RJD2. RJ, how are we doing, man? I'm good, man. Thank you guys so much for having me. I appreciate it. Dude, I mean, obviously your chorus, RJD2 from Samples to Songs coming out, is out yes. by the time people are hearing this. Yes. And uh, oh my God, what a journey it's been working with you on this course. I want to get into it uh, a little bit with you, of course, in a little bit. Okay. Uh, but today, guys, we're talking sample fodder songs, an appropriate theme for our guest. 
Now, I know what you guys both selected, but were there any tracks that you considered for this episode that you ended up not landing on? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I come at it from a number of different ways of like mm. both what's been used, what, what's the, what are their interesting stories behind. My pick was largely arrived at just from the sheer volume of stories that can be mm-hmm. told mm-hmm. on this track, but absolutely. I mean, for anybody that's familiar with the Ultimate Breaks and Beats compilations, mm-hmm. instantly in my head, I, I can just go through and basically pick 80% of the things that were put on those compilations as mm-hmm. potentials for this. I believe I ended up with one of those, actually, so we'll talk about that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's funny, I've been going through this course, RJ's got this amazing system for like cataloging samples, finding samples, mm-hmm. And just the the depth and the breadth of the knowledge therein is just so impressive. And I'm I'm over here with my my Spotify playlist called Sample This. <laughs> and it's just like anytime a sample comes around, I've, I'm like listening to some 70s jazz recording or 60s jazz recording. I'm like, oh, okay, there's something there I could I, I mm-hmm. could swipe. So just throw it on the list. Yeah, whatever. Come back to awesome. it. And I'm like, do I remember why I chose this and what I wanted to sample from this? I don't think so. So I've got this big list and it's, you know, mostly that kind of stuff. It's funny, like Marty, I, I was saving this for later, but you touched on it as perfect. Uh, we have a question from our community actually for you, RJ. And, and uh-huh. Penny Lane was wondering, uh, they would be interested in how you actually organize your samples for ease of use. They have so many samples and they find that just finding the one that they need is just such a struggle. Uh, obviously, you go into this a ton in the course, but I uh, would love to get your thoughts here as well. Yeah, I, I mean, in terms of finding samples, to me, it's probably going to sound obvious, but I think that the single most beneficial thing anybody can do is um, achieving a way to listen to music from a utilitarian standpoint uh, relative to sampling. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you can do that, you can listen to anything and everything. It, it really does kind of give you a, a different perspective on music you start thinking of sound as kind of building blocks and pieces. So that I think is probably the single most beneficial thing anyone could do in terms of organizing. Mm-hmm. I use a post-it note system. I try to break my record collection into, you know, chunks uh, that I'll have cards, divider cards within those divider cards. I try to loosely speaking kind of front load things. So like I'll label you know, to use an example, if I'm finding, you know, a drum break, I'll have a divider card that says drum breaks. I'll put a post-it mm-hmm. note on the thing that says drum breaks side two, track three. In addition to that, if I think it's like a nine out of 10, I'll put that at the front of that section. And if it's a two out of 10, I'll mm-hmm. keep it and I'll catalog it because you never know what kind of situation you're going to be and what you're going to, what's going to work but I'll put those kind of at the end. Hmm. I'll work my way backwards from, in essence, the stuff that I like the most to the stuff I like the least. Yeah, you see Spotify needs a a, a post-it note system. That's what it needs. (laughs) That's what it's missing. I'm sure they'll be introducing that uh, shortly. That that would be fantastic. Well, gentlemen, why don't we dive into some music? Let's let's get listening. Uh, This is our first selection for the episode. It happened to be my pick, so let's, let's dive right in.
Can I pause it right there? Absolutely. I just want to give you two thoughts there. We were talking earlier about this, uh, you know, achieving a mind state where you're listening to sound is, you know, building blocks for something and, and not aesthetically. Um, so this tune starts and it's got the, the piano stabs. And right there, I feel like that's the kind of thing that you could probably get away with looping those, but you could also just, you know, chop them and create three indiv individual samples that would be those, you know, piano stabs at the top of the tune. And you could put those in any number of ways. I, I think that it's the kind of thing that uh, a sample-based producer would gravitate towards because of the, the character of it is musically interesting enough and yet it still leaves room for expansion and interpretation and something you can build on top of. And I think the, also the same thing of the second segment, there's, there's a part where the, the upright bass walks down half steps from the tonic. Same thing applies to that. I think that you could take that, you know, there's again, there's almost surely a loop in there, but you could also chop that. It's interesting enough, but also has space. The big mistake I made when I started making rap records is I was trying to make complete compositions that you that were you know standalone things that sounded great by themselves. And the problem yeah. I would run to is I'd pitch these to rappers and they'd be like, "There's no space for me." You know, this is right. this is already, and, and it was a hard lesson to learn that it was in, incredibly valuable. Is how do you scale something back? And you basically you can't think of it like you're 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 actively trying to hit a home home run. You're you're mm. you're literally only trying to hit a double or a triple, <sighs> so that the rapper can, you know, bring the run in, yeah. if you will. So trying to, to serve yeah, that meatball up for them to hit the home run. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Exactly. So, dude, I I love that this is the first time ever that we've gotten such deep insight before the name of the track comes to. So <laughs> we're listening to "Old Devil Moon" from Ahmad Jamal. This recording itself comes from a portfolio of Ahmad Jamal uh, live at the Spotlight Club. Um, we've got Israel Crosby on bass, Vernell Fournier on drums. Recorded in 1958 released in 1959. You know, it's funny, Keith Jarrett said that this record in particular really changed his life. And the Colm concert album from, from Keith Jarrett was something that I thought about maybe bringing in and pulling, just total solo piano works. I don't want to digress, but do you know the story behind that Colm concert? Uh, please. As the story goes, apparently, Keith Jarrett's on tour, he's in Europe, he shows up, and the promoter was kind of like a younger promoter she was kind of like flying by the seat of her pants and it's going to be solo keith jarrett he gets to the venue and he goes for sound check and he tests the piano and apparently the piano is like fairly out of tune mm. at the top and bottom ends the action is terrible and he says i literally i can't we're gonna have to cancel the concert i can't i not i can't play this piano But through some wrangling and, and convincing and, and, and so on and so forth, he is convinced to go ahead with the concert. But he radically modifies his style of playing mm. so that he basically favors uh, some of the overtones that sound more pleasant on the piano. Mm. But he, 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 he scaled back the range of his playing and the style of his playing drastically. And it became, I think, his most popular and in, in, yeah. in best-selling record if i remember correctly talk about creative constraints man yeah <laughs> we, we talk about that in the course a bunch yeah. is a you know yeah. the, the the benefit of limitations you know yeah 
and putting yourself in a box and and yeah, yeah absolutely um so of course uh ahmad jamal we talked a, a little bit about just an incredible depth of of history of sampling of his music. I, yeah. On this podcast, I, we went deep earlier on Stakes as High, of course, uh, chopping up Swahili land. Jamil Nasser on bass has to be shouted out there because the bass line is, you know, obviously so important to that chop. Uh, we've got uh, his track I Love Music uh, from The Awakening turned into Nasser's The World Is Yours, of course. Whose world is this? The world is yours. The world is yours. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. Whose world is this? It seems to me that like if he was just born 30 years later he would be like a hip-hop producer like just the way that he he plays and approach the the piano with incredible depth of touch so much space at a yeah. time where it's like okay we have a bunch of changes and you know hard bops starting to happen there's like we're gonna put more and more changes we need more chord changes. we need to be able to play all this stuff and jamal's just like restraint 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 playing melodies all of his arrangements and improvisation is all about space. Yeah, it's interesting how his style of play kind of uh, lent itself so favorably to sampling in, in the world of hip-hop. Because I think some of those things are not what you would particularly guess or intuit. You know, if I put myself in, in, the, in the shoes of like, oh, if I was a, a 60s, you know, early 60s player of anything in, in jazz, moving into that late 60s, mid, early 70s, mm. mid 70s mm. period, the things that I would assume would have utility at a later time aren't necessarily the things that had the most utility, if that makes any sense. And I think it is totally. a testament to how uh, sample-based hip-hop producers really were able to you know, make something new out of something mm -hmm. that was not for that uh, you know, intent, if you will. In the course in particular, you talk, RJ, about how, you know, you, you had an interesting relationship with music theory. Like you studied, you, you were a guitar player, you were in jazz combos in high school, and then you buried it when you started making records. But then you found that, like, you maybe thought there was going to be a limitation without that knowledge. And it's funny, I, we see, I think I've seen a lot of beat makers maybe come to Soundfire, even just friends of mine, they're like, I don't want to learn that stuff because I feel like it's going to put me in a box. But like, yep. you're a testament to that being the exact opposite. I wouldn't mind. Yeah. Would you mind? Yeah. Discussing just a little bit about how you decided I need to, to add to my harmonic vocabulary and then how that maybe blossomed into opening so many doors for you creatively. To me, the, the pathway of, of it, of learning, uh, mm. you know, the technical side of music uh, is very similar to kind of like a, a ascent and descent up and over a mountain or a hill or something like that. I completely understand when people say things like, Oh, I don't want to learn this stuff. Cause 
I don't. Then I'm just going to be a clone. I'm just going to be like every yeah. other Berkeley music grad that's coming out. And, <laughs> and I understand because I thought that it, there was a point in time where I thought that not understanding the mechanics of music was a, of of benefit. And th- I will say there is some truth to that. If what you can do is exist solely inside your kind of your own internal musical language. Mm-hmm. And I think people can develop their own internal musical language that makes sense to them. And they can do that. Uh, but for, my, for me, in my experience, you know, when I talk about the ascent up a mountain, there's a point at which where you're learning, it's, it sucks. And it's not... <laughs> Yeah. fun and it's just kind of like an instrument like if you, when you're learning to play an instrument you're so focused on the technical part of it that the playing cannot be fun it can it can suck and then mm-hmm. you get over that and then once you just kind of normalize and then it's it becomes you know how to hold a drumstick or how to hold a, a guitar pick or how to where to put your fingers on a keyboard when those things start to become background code and you're mm-hmm. You, you, mm-hmm. now you can think about what you're saying with the instrument not just literally having to play the instrument. And I think the same thing applies to music theory, where it, you know, once it becomes a tool that doesn't need to dominate your conscious mind as you're using it, yeah. then it just becomes a tool. You pick it up, you put it down when, it, when you want it, and you put it down when you don't want it. And uh, that can, then what it becomes is completely liberating and freeing. Mm-hmm. But you do have to get to that other side of the hill. Piano trio records from this era that instantly draw me in as sample fodder. And I'm trying to think of like what, maybe it's the way it's recorded and there's space in there. Like there's a lot of separation. You'll have the piano maybe panned to totally one side because that's where the mic was in 1960 or whatever. And same with the bass and the drums. Um, There's so much atmosphere. In the beginning of this track, you have the audience clapping and stuff. You hear Jamal's foot kind of tapping too, I think, (laughs) counting the tune off. I'm I'm inclined to think that it uh, it has more to do with the playing mm-hmm. than the yeah. the engineering because for me when I hear you know the engineering of this recording it sounds like a live recording and and in general that's not a thing that usually that's a liability not an asset you know right so I think that it would probably be more the playing. Is is what I would gravitate to mm-hmm. as uh, reasons for that. What what are your thoughts, Martin? Yeah, it's it's so interesting. It's thinking. Uh, I love that you brought up the the year and the era because I I think of so much of that music as tied together as a part of a lineage. But it's it's really important to recognize the massive differences in production. But in terms of piano trios and and that sort of being great sample fodder, I think of it as just. You know, here's you. You have all your basics sort of covered in terms of um, uh, harmonic content. Mm-hmm. Like right there, you've got like a nice voicing. It's well rounded. It's warm. It's, it's accentuated with drums. You know, you can always high pass drums. So you make space for your own drums, um, or high pass samples rather. So you can make mm-hmm. space for your own drums. So it's kind of like it. It just ha- it's the full package. You don't have to do much to it. Yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. it's all it's all there for you. And so I the other interesting thing though is is about I think Carter for you in particular, I could hear you hearing this record and being like, 
oh, this sounds like hip hop records I love. Yeah, yeah. Because it's already yeah. been sampled so many times, you know, this yeah. style of piano trio. Dude, there, there's definitely like some ties to, because I'm, I'm a huge Robert Glasper fan, of course, and there are some ties to Jamal's playing. You hear this trill that he plays at about 50 seconds and you're like, that could be today and that I could hear Robert Glasper playing that, but let's listen to that right now. RJ, you refer to it as the Q-tip approach and the DJ Primo, DJ Premier approach, right? Where it's like, where you're finding more implied rhythms and loops, that's maybe more the Q-tip approach. And then with Premier, it's like, there's no implied rhythm whatsoever. Everything is fair game. I'm going to take it, chop it, and rearrange it. I I can't I can't find myself looking, and, and I'm excited to even go through this course more now as a student because I want to look at music more from both perspectives. So much of my chopping or anything like that comes down to looking for implied rhythms and, and things like that. So this is the moment that when I heard this record and heard this track probably a decade ago, there was this very specific loop that was like, this is absolutely perfect. So let's have a listen to that. So I wanted to make a little example for you guys of what I was thinking. So I chopped something hey. up a little quickly and uh, very hastily put a little idea together. And this is kind of what I came up with. So... slick <laughs> i like it so that's basically it that that's the chop that i found i love the changes so what's going on there again is just like this this beauty of harmony and this depth of harmony i've looked at all these different lead sheets i've looked at a bunch of different versions this only exists in ahmad jamal's playing in his mm -hmm. rendition of the track so you have the one major chord f major i think he's just playing a triad right off the top so really it just comes down to touch as being why it sounds so good. Uh, then you get the flat seven, E flat major seven, back to the one chord, and then we get a lush flat six major seven, mm -hmm. that D flat mm -hmm. that just like... I should have known the moment that flat six hit that that was the moment that, that you were going to choose. That's such a Carterism, that, that sort of turnaround like that, that sense of harmony. It's like in your musical language, that, that particular kind of change, you know? It's funny, like it's Glasper-like mode mixture 60 years earlier. It's the craziest thing that like you hear, you hear that and you're like, oh yeah, I've heard that before. And like you check the records that you've heard it before on and they're very recent, very, very recent. But Ahmad Jamal, I think maybe has gotten his due, but I still think is, is criminally underrated as, as an innovator oh, yeah, and, sure. and a piano player and, and, and an artist but also just so ahead of his time. This is a super obvious pick, and any for seasoned 
hip-hop guys, they might be, uh, you know, thinking, why is he picking this thing? That's like, Rolling this, their eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a, a standard, this is, you know, a guitar player playing Stairway to Heaven in guitar or something like that. And that's fine. I'm not here to, to out, you know, there's an, for one, yeah. I wanted to pick a thing where most of the samples that we were potentially going to discuss were cleared. Mm-hmm. And, and were kind of like above board because they were yeah. on major labels and they could do that. So then it kind of liberates the conversation around the tune. Yeah. There are other songs in the history of sample-based music that have been sampled more on a volume uh, 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 criteria in terms yeah, of... Yeah, we'll get into that. Like, like there's X... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're, you're, exactly. But in terms of different locations of the same song being sampled, Nautilus might be the most widely utilized song in the history of sampling, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Uh, and just to point out for anybody that doesn't know, we're listening to Nautilus by Bob James. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, on first listen too, like there's, there's, it's so loopable and choppable that you're, oh, I, I was like, am I sure this isn't also like, I was waiting for an MC to just hit the track at, at some point. I'm familiar with the track, of course, but yeah, like, oh my God. So ju- just looking at the first, maybe eight bars of the tune, <laughs> Yeah. There's a number of things that I think are worth mentioning. Number one, it starts with a musical phrase that rides over another musical phrase that re- ends up riding over a- another musical phrase. And so this thing, it has this sensation of it's just building on itself because it literally is. The phrase that it opens with, it, you know, it's a half bar loop. It's repetitive, but it's interesting enough. So right there, I mean, to, you know, you talked about like things that were like the blueprint for hip hop. To me, this song is, in many ways, it might be the closest thing to like, mm. like a whatever you would call it, progenitor of hip hop or something. Mm-hmm. Because just making a half bar loop that's interesting, that's not boring, but also doesn't dominate the conversation is really hard. So that's just the first musical phrase there. Yeah. Another thing I want to talk about here, as it pertains to that phrase. For anybody who's ever sat down at a Fender Rhodes and tried to recreate that sound mm. texturally, I still am not sure how that was recorded. Wow. So you have the musical side of it, which is interesting. But if you were to, you know, for example, if, if Ahmad Jamal were to play that exact musical phrase in 1958 on a piano, on an acoustic piano, it would not nearly been as widely sampled. So you have this kind of otherworldly texture to the actual sound of what you're hearing. When I hear it, I'm like, it's halfway between a synthesizer and a Fender Rhodes. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm fairly confident that it's a processed Fender Rhodes. But I have, I've run that thing through, you know, a Rhodes through a 2600 and a bunch of effects pedals, and I still can't duplicate the tonality of it. Mm. it it's just got this like mysterious feel to it. Kind of feels like outer space to me, just yeah. in terms of the, the, the note selection. And then when the bass line comes in, you, okay, you have like, oh, uh, 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 uh. now you have a one bar. You've got a half bar loop that's introduced, but what happens underneath it is a one bar loop. Great, perfect musical idea that can always add interest to things. It's a killer bass line on its own. I'm going to detour quickly here and say yeah. that like, just the bass line is so iconic that some people not, might not even realize that um, Slick Rick's children's story is... The baseline to Nautilus, oh, just replayed. <laughs> and if you listen to it in your head, you'll realize it. And and it's it's a little bit of a what the f moment. 
you kids get to bed, I get the story. So that's just, you know, th that's another reason I wanted to pick the song is like there's literal sampling of the audio that this happened hundreds of times on this, but there's also mm -hmm. figurative sampling that's happened with this. And we're only at this point, I don't know, maybe 16 bars in, maybe not. Yeah, tops. I. It's funny too, like, so that, that line, the bass line and the guitar doubling it, A yeah. minor pentatonic, just to take on some very small theory uh, tangent, the binary pentatonic scale shows up a lot, I think, in RJ, a lot of the maybe the samples that you've chosen, even the oh, music yeah. that you make, even when you're oh, creating yeah. samples with your own instrumentation. Why is that scale so universally used? I, I, you touch on it in the chorus a little bit, but like, why to you is that just so you can just break it into so many different parts and, and use it in so many different contexts? Um, to, to me, it's, it's a great starting point. Mm. It's, it's a scale that you can... You know, if you utilize all of the notes on paper, you get a particular feel. And if you start omitting notes, like this, this is just is just first, fifth, fourth, third, seventh, first. That's it. So mm -hmm. you're, there's there's some limitations to the degrees of the scale that are being used as it appears in the Bob James tune. It just gives you a huge amount of freedom for me. You can also start nudging things if you add your minor sixth. That's going to give it a distant feel. You, yeah. yeah, you know, your your flat fifth. Uh, you know, your tritone, that's going to give it another, you know, as kind of like a passing note, if you yep. will. So it just, it's, it's a thing that you can push in a number of different ways and kind of get different feels. Love that. Uh, what else do you want to talk about on Nautilus? Me or Martin? Uh, either of you, but okay. definitely, definitely you. <laughs> but I'd love Marty's take on any I'll of I'll say my well. piece and then I'll shut up and I'll turn it over to you. Nah, All right, Martin? I want to hear you talk about this. <laughs> that's why I okay. came today. Okay. Um, the, um, the drum uh, drummer on this track if we skip ahead a little bit you can kind of skip over the b section and it returns back to the a section and, and he moves to the ride mm. and that's when things kind of open up bob james his solo starts Okay, so at this point in time, we've abandoned the original groove for the bass line, and now it's gotten much more simplified. And, and the, the rhythm section is locked in, they're swinging their asses off, mm -hmm. and everything that's happening on the top with the strings and the, and the roads is still kind of... All these different phrases that each of them have their own kind of brand of intrigue for me. It's not any one particular phrase that's being repeated, there's a million <laughs> yeah. phrases that all kind of have a similar, somewhat similar characteristic. And they don't feel like a solo, but they don't feel like a looped groove. They're kind of Serge Gainsbourg string arrangement-esque, mm. just like odyssey, linear odyssey into, you know, wherever. And what it, what is it about Rhodes focused band leaders that make such amazing sound? Like Bob James, Ronnie Foster. I, there's so many others too that I'm like that. There's escaping me right now, but they just sound so good. Like every oh man, yeah. I don't know there's, what it is. There's something about the. I really, you know, you were talking about the Amajamal tune earlier, and one of the things that I realized that tech, from a technical standpoint, a thing that makes that late '50s era 
jazz, you know, piano trio so sampleable, if you will, is that technically speaking, you don't have a humongous backbeat to compete with. Right. You can push right. the rhythms where you want because the drumming is literally not very loud in the recording. It's fairly quiet. Yep. You've got a bass that's nice and thick and warm. And then on the top end, you don't have like a brass section or strings or a vocalist or anything. So you have these huge chasms at the top and the bottom, just kind of waiting to be filled up with whatever your hip hop producer mind is going to do for the drums and on the vocals. Mm -hmm. So in a literal sense, I think the Rhodes does a similar thing that it, it you know, it, it, it occupies a, a sonic space that's not too demanding, but still it's just got, it's just a beautiful character. I mean, I think of Fender Rhodes and vibraphone as these things that like, yeah. It's, if you ever stand in a room and just play one, it's kind of obvious. Like, oh, of course. I mean, this is this is that perfect <laughs> middle ground between yeah. the drummer and whatever a vocalist is going to do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Marty, any any uh, additional thoughts on Nautilus? Man, it's just uh, I don't know. You kind of covered it, RJ. Just yeah. it's, it's such an iconic style of playing, especially in the drums, the feel and the groove of it. When you get these super A-list session musicians in this era, just having a good time. Yeah. The groove that comes out of that is just undeniable and immediately lends itself to layering and layering into new contexts. You don't have to do a lot to it to make it sound good. They already sound good, you know? Mm -hmm. There's a drum, like quasi-solo, that to me is definitely one of the shining points. It starts with a thing that um, became Beats to the Rhyme, by Run DMC, and then I think it just kind of like goes from there. That became such an iconic Run DMC loop. It, it feels like a drum break. And this yeah. is a perfect example of how extreme minimalism can like do so much. I mean, it's just two notes on the, on that affected roads. It's going through a phaser or whatever it is in a drum loop. But because of the placement of the notes and the drums and the swing and everything, that's really all you need. I mean, that is beats to the rhyme by run DMC. Yeah. What the drummer is doing, what Idris Muhammad is doing here, to me, really kind of like, I've borrowed so much from just this, the upcoming part. Yeah. <laughs> the fact that a drummer can just go, he can yeah. end a bar. Instead of playing a drum fill, he's going to just go. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that can be done. It's I I know it sounds like I'm harping on a tiny little thing, but no, not at all. That's that groundbreaking to me. That like you it can is. that can be a drum fill. Yeah, <laughs> so. and that touch, comes through. That comes through taste. in your tunes. Like that aesthetic, totally. I I hear you say that. And I'm like that makes perfect sense for so much of what I've heard you do over the years. That immediately comes through as a part of your your musical vocabulary, your sense of musical taste, like you were talking about earlier. Mm. Yeah, just the attention to detail and the simplicity, the beauty of the simplicity. Uh, I don't know, it does something for me, that's for sure. How do you explain 
the art of sampling to somebody that's completely unfamiliar with it. I think that a lot of what we've discussed today can help. You know, I'm talking maybe even my parents who are like, I don't, I don't understand it. Is it just something like, yeah, I can't explain that to somebody if they just don't get it. That's totally fine. Like, you know, I, it's a tough one to explain in mm -hmm. the, the easiest and simplest way I, I have when forced to, I, I generally try not to sell people yeah. on, on things, yeah. but probably the easiest analogy for me is to explain it like a mosaic in visual art. Mm. There's a, you know, you can, you can make a mosaic and technically speaking, the components of the mosaic are not are, are another piece of something, another piece of material. Mm -hmm. And at its best, a mosaic is a thing in which that source material, ceramic, print, otherwise, whatever, collage art, you know, these are things where it, at its best, the concept and what the, the artist is trying to say is at the forefront and the material that it's constructed from kind of just disappears in your mind um, at its best. You know, and so to me, I see sampling as something that same thing applies. Mm -hmm. There's degrees to it, you, you know what I mean? But uh, at its best, that is kind of what, what happens is the what the artist making the piece is trying to communicate is the the dominant aesthetic of what you're hearing. Beautifully, beautifully said. Uh, gentlemen, let's listen to our last selection of the day. Here Actually, we before we oh. do that, before yeah. we do that, the one thing that I that I insist that we get into is <laughs> is this thing that we talked about a little bit with the Ahmad Jamal, which is um, the difference in eras of production, especially with drum production in particular, and how those kinds of samples over different decades, over different years, evolved. When you're listening to all these different records you've listened to over the years, what sticks out to you as important about different, different eras of production? Oh, gosh. I mean, that's a huge huge thing to, to, to sorry tackle. is that the next podcast is that the whole, <laughs> yeah whole we could episode. do a, a whole podcast but i mean i guess in in short um different eras have different uh feature sets if you will that make them uh more applicable to to sampling so you know you look at drums i'm not aware of anything that was recorded before 1960 that has the same immediacy of something like impeach the president or Mm. skull snaps or something like that and and uh, the primary you know reason for that is the engineering behind how those how records were made in 75 versus 1950 but it goes both ways it doesn't mean that 1975 is some kind of like benchmark year for all things you know each era kind of has its uh recording artifacts if you will mm -hmm. and engineering artifacts might be uh more specifically said uh that can that you can gravitate towards and pull things out of. That's a great answer. And actually dovetails really well into, into the track that I picked because I picked it in many ways for that exact reason. It's such a cross section of a particular era of engineering that has stood the test of time as, as something people come back to, but is also, it's only applicable to that particular era of music production. doesn't mm -hmm. mean it's better or worse. It just is a thing that people continuously turn to and you'll find out why in a sec. So from now on, we're gonna use what we got to get what we want. So you'd better think.
What are we listening to, Marty? We're listening to the uh, the 1972 classic from Lynn Collins mm. called Think About It. Um, according to whosampled.com, the most reliable source, of course, <laughs> on the internet for all facts and figures regarding samples. Um, I, I believe the second most sampled uh, recording ever. I was looking at this track and it said it's been sampled in 3,000 songs. And I was like, ah, I must be like around 3,000 songs. And then I refreshed the page and it refreshed to 3,001 songs. <laughs> and I was like, oh no, it literally just hit 3,000 like bona fide tracks have been made using this recording. Wow. That is unreal. Yeah. Um, so think about it. One of the, if you want to talk about like eye rolls from the, from the producer crowd, this is like <laughs> eyes have rolled so far in the back of their head that they've come back again. But I think it's a really important track to talk about when you talk about sample fodder because it's been contextualized in so many different ways and has been mm -hmm. foundational to whole subgenres of music, which is why I chose yeah. it. Um, yeah. RJ, I mean, before I go on, I, I would love to hear your take on this record and yeah. like. If it's all right, what I'd love to do is skip ahead and listen to the drum break. Yeah. And then we can kind of delve into, you know, talking. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you don't recognize that, you, you've truly been living under a rock for 50 years. So, yeah, take it away, RJ. I want to I wanna hear your relationship to this, to this record. You know, a, a, a couple things jump out immediately on this. The, the first being, this is uh, you might have already mentioned this, but this is a James Brown production, so it's almost surely, mm -hmm. uh, you know, James Brown's house band, either J. Bill Starks or or Clyde Stubblefield, yes, playing drums. But he had such a heavy hand in directing and uh, producing all of the Lynn Collins, Vicky Anderson, Bill Doggett, James Brown, JBs, any record that came out. Under his under his watch, pretty obvious he had a very very heavy hand in the uh, the aesthetics of it. So you get that swing and that funk and and everything about it effectively sounds like a James Brown record with uh, yeah. you know Lynn Collins singing on it. So the the drums they sound great. There's enough thump in the kick. You can just loop that break if you need, and you really don't have to do much else. If you're a rapper, for example, and you want to rap over something that's 110 beats per minute and it's just a drum break, this will suffice. You don't need to do anything else other than just loop that. Mm -hmm. Which is essentially what Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock did <laughs> yeah. for yeah. their 1988 yeah. classic, It Takes yeah. Two. I wanna rock right now. I'm Rob Bass and I came to get down. I'm not internationally known, but I'm known to rock the microphone because I get stupid. I mean, that's exactly what's going on yeah. there. They just were like, okay, they did our work for us, basically. Let's just, yeah. let's just loop this. The second thing I want to point out that's just sticking with that iconic break is that you've got these two yelps that happen. Yep. Again, this is the kind of thing I, I don't think anybody could plan out, but like if those were sung notes, if, if Nina Sonamone, for example, was the, the vocalist on this track, she would have sung a note and that would have implied a key. And this thing would never would have become what it became mm -hmm. because these are in essence yelps that aren't in any key. So it doesn't matter what you're, you know, you can do a whole lot more with just a, a non-tonal yelp than a sung note. Yeah. The placement and, and how they sound, everything about it is, 
just again, you know, we were talking earlier about like this idea of like sounds that draw you in because you aren't exactly sure they're kind of indefinable. I mean, these are obviously a human voice, but they're kind of weird things to happen. I can't think of a lot of songs that have a sound like that. You know no, what I mean? So on the end of the two and the four. Yeah, yeah. On the end of like the four is like a weird, like, oh yeah, yeah, woo. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's yeah. definitely, and it, but it helps tie the groove together. It's like that's totally. where the space was. That's where the space 100%. was. So it can. It can add to the groove. Oh, man. That's the thing that's been really interesting for me in sort of picking apart where this came from. I went down this rabbit hole only a few months ago when I was starting to delve into, you know, the jungle drum and bass kind of sound, which is having its own sort of interesting resurgence in mm -hmm. certain uh, mm -hmm. realms of electronic music. And I've been really interested in, in that and what's going on there. You hear about a lot in what's called liquid drum and bass, which is this sort of like... I mean, I'll be honest, it's like, it's the smooth jazz of, of drum and bass, but <laughs> I feel like it's my guilty pleasure. I love it. I love it. But it's all, it's all bass. It's all got this, this sound going on. And I would hear those little yelps in the loops with the classic tambourine sound in all of these different tracks mm -hmm. just across the board. And I was like, that's the thing. That's the thing that's so cool. That's the thing that like defines what's going on in this music. It's essential to this music is that little Yelp, like, where does that come from? Come to find out, it's, it's James Brown yelling in the background of his own production. Yeah. Like, 50 years later, almost. It's wild. So, for example, there was a, a track I had queued up called The Unspoken by Technomatic, which is a great uh, sort of modern example of, of that. pretty subtle in the background there but you can really hear the baba 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 you know yeah it's funky yeah it's, it's still funky <laughs> yeah i mean you talk about a break that like that in you know the amen break yeah. really did just birth a subgenre of electronic music it's amazing to me it's really really cool that that, that these things got you know uh taken to such a far degree that's so far away from aesthetically what the original track was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting to point out as well that part of the aesthetic of that for that subgenre for all sort of drum and bass and jungle is dependent upon playing that record back at the wrong speed as well. Yeah. That it's, yeah. it's all about taking a 33, playing it at 45, and just yeah. hearing this sort of chirpy chipmunky <laughs> version of it. But it also... Yeah. Like you were saying, it makes a specific kind of space and air in the sample itself that leaves a lot of room for like heavy hitting drum samples to get layered underneath it and have it still have a lot of really intense impact and the groove, the funk that comes from the sample. So like this other track, which is a more classic example of a sort of early mid 90s jungle uh, called it's a uh, it's called Sound Murderer by Remark, uh, this particular mix of it, Loafing and Broccoli mix. Hear that, that chip monkey James Brown up in there, you know, <laughs> just doing his thing, keeping it funky. So it's just such a funny sort of 
artifact from this record that continues yeah. to to be seen and and utilized year after year. This this record continues to be sampled. It's it's really wild. And of course, the Amen break comes in later in that track. So it's a uh, a match made in heaven there. There's so many cuts from this record and so much sample fodder. Any any other that you really want to cue up? Yeah. The other thing I want to talk about. And I just, I'm so curious, RJ, in your experience, if this is sort of an anomaly of the production of this record, but like where else in the history of music do you hear two bar tambourine breaks where they're like, <laughs> you know, it seems like a good idea. Just, just yeah. two bars of tambourine between sections. That'll make some space. It's pretty abnormal for sure. That's so yeah. sick. Yeah, yeah I, I I can't think of another track in the in the history of music that has had that long of a break of tambourine or any amount of break of just like in the middle yeah. of a track. Just tambourine. I mean, I mean, there's, yeah. there's tracks that the drum will drop out because they're gonna highlight a, yeah of a, a vocal piece or something. But there's yeah, it's just tambourine, and it also it's real nice and clean cut, like right on the one. There's no pickups that happen. Drummer isn't filling his way in. It's just, it's a literal loop. Boom. Yep. Here you go. <laughs> yeah, it's a trip. It's almost like they knew what was coming, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like almost, it's made to order practically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that the the particular quality of that tambourine sound is the thing that always catches my ear in recordings that use that sample. I can always hear that tambourine sticking out or in a lot of tracks in the style that maybe are trying to, separate from that sample they still end up creating a sound that's trying to capture that same air that same quality of that tambourine sound from that mm. particular recording so mm. fascinating to me anything else from this track at all from either of you guys before we uh before we wrap things up no i mean you know the only other thing to uh, of note is that the uh again kind of uh the unintended consequences kicking in at the intro of this tune there's all these vocal bits that have been yeah hit like a uh, uh, you know six ways to Sunday. It's a long intro, like by like for yeah for a song that's gonna end up in a groove, and it, and also you know if you have this record on forty five, I mean you can't put a seven minute song on a, on a forty five. So I don't know what this, <laughs> if this playtime on this tune is three and a half minutes. You're burning the first forty seconds of that with her just bsing yeah. at the top which is great it's great it's just a weird choice to you know what i mean yeah, yeah. definitely and the only other thing that i i would say is i think it's interesting this tune that it's of an era where very very close mic not a lot of reverb you're talking about the tambourine sound that's tambourine's got to be within two feet of a microphone if i yeah. were guessing and yet it's a cannibal adderley-esque like they're taking great pains to like to fake like a party setting or a live setting Mm-hmm. And right. it's all around the the performances. You know, they're they're kind of acting like this is happening in a club when it's very, very obviously happening in a studio. Yeah. And that's not yeah. a critique. It's just an interesting thing that would, you know, people did that in, yeah. in the 70s. Well, in the, in the, at the end of the day, that's like why James Brown can get away with just yelping all over a track that's not even his track, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. 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 And is an artifact if, that now we live with to this day. You know, yeah, sure as hell feels guy. like a party when he does it. I mean, that's, yeah. that's for sure. <laughs> The only other thing I wanted to ask you about RJ is like, you know, 3,000 plus sampled tracks, you know, or th- tracks using this sample. It feels almost like this is a track that belongs to the public domain just by virtue of how much it's been sampled. Mm. 
you were talking, touched a little bit on on simple clearance and having open conversations about sampling. It can be such a dicey thing, mm-hmm. essentially using other people's uh, sound recording IP. But I'm so curious, like what your take, what your ethos is on sampling, on using other folks' material, and when does something become sort of like transcend the original recording to the point that it's it's sort of something else entirely? Yeah, I I think in some ways the assessment of that is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. You know, it's it's a it's a tough thing for me to try to see as having any kind of like hard line. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I mean, I guess to to kind of use like an analogy, there are chord changes that are so ubiquitous that they're considered for all intents and purposes in the eyes of the law, they're considered effectively public domain. And then there's chord right. changes that are that aren't and I'm not here to stake a moral claim on one or the other, but I think that you know if you're gonna have a system of law, what are the parameters for what is and isn't considered enforceable slash public yeah. domain? And is is the only criteria age? I don't know. I'm I am not in here mm-hmm. in any way to make a claim because I think that when I zoom out on this, when I'm really honest with myself. This is going to sound like hyper philosophical and forgive me for taking it here, but to me that is the end conclusion, so we might as well end yeah. up here anyway. In the history of human evolution is humans making a living off of art some kind of like weird anomaly or aberration in in terms of evolution that mm. we are just living through right now. Yeah. That kind of doesn't make complete sense. Because it didn't yeah. exist at one point in time, and maybe it won't exist at, <laughs> maybe we'll reach, <laughs> yeah. you know, some some other point in time where it's like, and you could call it a utopia where I don't, you know, people like me, you know, it's it's almost impossible to make a living in art. There's an argument that that maybe should happen, you, you know? Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I Forgive me for making a hyper-philosophical conversation, but it really is to me kind of like the end destination of any of these conversations. Yeah. The logical so, conclusion. I yeah. RJ, your course, man. We got to touch on this really quick sure, before sure. we wrap because your brand new course, RJD2, From Samples to Songs, is live now at soundfly.com. What can folks expect from your course? It was a blast to do, you know, and, and I, I honestly, I, I learned things from making this course that I didn't, mm. or I, I realized things about my own process of making records from just talking through this course uh, because I hadn't really picked it apart and analyzed it to the degree that we did before at all. Um, what can people expect? As much help, information, guidance, uh, tips, tricks, secrets as I can cram into a course <laughs> yeah. that will, uh, you know, help anyone who is interested in making sample-based music, and I think to a larger degree, just the assembly of how we make records in a modern era on a computer, I'd like to think that these concepts apply to just general record making. To me, it's just as much about that than it is about how one goes about making a recording. Just by the nature of the music you make, it is, there's a lot of sample focus on it of course but there's so much about arranging like your approach to arranging is is incredibly unique and and that 
is a huge through line through the course. You kind of touched on this as well, but I just, I love getting questions from our community and I want to make sure that I ask them. Mm -hmm. So this is from Eric Anderson. What can people who are completely new to sampling, have really never done it before at all, expect to learn and and even benefit from uh, by taking this course? Um, You know, what you can expect is uh, a kind of introductory... Uh, entry point into the basic concepts behind, yeah. you know, taking a, a, what, we, what we've talked about in this podcast is kind of building blocks or components of sound and creating something out of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be a starting point. And then the end point is following that process through to completing a song yeah. and, and completing a song to the best degree that you possibly can. I found it really illuminating too for something as simple as like, well, why a lesson on on that? But like crate digging or like how to how to scour through records and like you touch on your just the wealth of experience and the in the years of looking at records that you can now just by the era of the record, maybe the image on the record, maybe the artwork on it or the personnel, you can tell, yes, this record's gonna be something I need to dig into. But beyond that, it's also like where to listen, how to find samples, how to or you touched on this too, but just even organizing your sounds, like something that feels simple, but it needs to be addressed. How to load sounds into the NPC, things like that. How to get them into your DAW, how to sequence things in your DAW. Stuff that, again, I think is often overlooked when you're starting out. Um, but because you've gone through it and you're looking back really through the lens of an incredible career that you're now disseminating as information. So I, I think it's just... One, I joked about this with you earlier, but I, and I'm not going to actually do it, but I want to send you a bill for the future MPC that I buy for sure because I'm so excited about buying one and digging in and, and really learning how to use it. But um, but I think the concepts know. apply to any machine. In, you know exactly. I, mean? I, I see not guys just doing that. things on the on the 404 on, on Twitter that, that's incredible, and there's all types of – I don't think the, the, the device really matters. Hopefully the concepts of the course are the things that will – you know, at the very least, provide some interest and some intrigue. Oh yeah, for someone that doesn't want to do it, and for and for who knows, maybe for someone who's on the fence about whether this is interesting for them, it could hopefully provide, like like you said, kind of an on ramp for for how it can be mm-hmm. gone about. Hundred uh, percent, Marty. Any thoughts on the course that we didn't didn't touch on that you want to want to hit here? There's a couple of things. I would say, while I totally agree, the concepts are the most important thing. I think for someone like me who had, who I feel like what I do a lot of is make a lot of sample-based music, a lot of arranging and organizing in sort of this way, I can't believe how many new things I learned from this course myself. Oh, cool. And yeah. in, in part, it was looking at the way that you've been so creative. I know you said the machine doesn't matter, but the way the machine has impose some creative restrictions on you mm. over the years led me to think about different ways of doing things that I've been doing for decades at this point that I might actually That's start awesome. incorporating into my regular music making. You know, I wouldn't have expected to come to the course and, and have my brain rewired in that way. <laughs> well, that's great to hear. Thank you. The other thing that's is uh, there's some really cool breakdowns of some uh, a couple of your tunes yeah. that I found very, very enlightening and insightful. And, and cool. um, that alone would have sold me. So, yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and RJ, anything else musically that uh, anything coming up that you want folks to be aware of? I mean, you don't you certainly don't have to divulge any secret 
things going on or new releases or anything like that surely the next record uh on my label rj's electrical connections was just submitted a week and a half ago yeah we're in this crazy i don't know if people probably are not privy to this but we're in this insane place with record manufacturing right now where the lead time for vinyl is like it's approaching like eight or nine months so i mean i submitted this last like I said, a week a week or two ago for test pressings. I'll probably have test pressings in the next two to four weeks. We're not going to have a release date for the vinyl till probably April or May of 2022. Wow. wow. Yeah. So that's how far out we are right now. Yeah. So there is a possibility that the digital version of this next record will be out uh, maybe like first quarter of 2022, but in all likelihood somewhere in the neighborhood of April or May. The good news is that the the record's completed. It's in. It's done. It's mastered. And you know, uh, after that, you know, I'm just gonna keep on, you know, chugging along, doing my thing, making records yeah. and uh, releasing them as I see fit. And that's gonna do it for this episode of Themes and Variation. Thank you so much for listening. We want to know your favorite sample fodder song. So as always, there is a link to a Spotify community playlist in our show notes. Feel free to add your selections there. And be sure to check out the brand new course on soundfly.com, RJD2, from samples to songs. As you heard from RJ himself on this episode, so much went into it, and I, I really think you're absolutely going to love this new course. And as a special treat, we're going to play this one out with a cut from RJ's record, The Colossus, Let There Be Horns. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode and a new theme.